you wanting more true crime content from me? Do you like the idea of hanging out with me, maybe sharing a drink or two, and chatting about our favorite true crime topics? Well, then you better download the Spotify Greenroom app and join me every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Central for True Crime Convos. I'll be discussing a new case every Tuesday or updating you on the latest trials and controversies in those trials a la Robert Durst, anyone? You can find me and follow me on Spotify Greenroom at Lainey Hobbs. From there, you'll just click the little notification bell and you'll be reminded every time I go live so you won't actually miss an episode. And of course, if you join Spotify Greenroom, you get the opportunity to interact with me on a one-on-one basis and share your theories or comments about the crime. It's been really fun so far, and I hope to see you there. Then on December 23rd, 2021, this is for my spooky people. I'm going to have author Mark Hartsman on to talk about his new book called Chasing Ghosts. It touches a little bit on true crime, but also on the paranormal and spooky. It's going to happen on October 23rd, 2001, 10 a.m. Eastern on Spotify Greenroom. I can't wait to see you there. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com TCFC. Now, as you know, I am a new mom, so my life is kind of crazy right now. And sure, everybody's life is full of stressors, and it doesn't matter who you are or what you have, your life is probably stressful. But I'm learning to navigate how to deal with any type of postpartum blues that I may be having, and BetterHelp has honestly really helped me. Now, you may not be feeling down and out and depressed, or like you're at a total loss, but if your stress is high, your temper is shorter than usual, or even if you're starting to feel strain in any of your relationships, you could probably use the chance to unload. So unload the stress and get it out. Talk to someone who's completely unbiased about your life, someone who isn't going to judge you or take sides on anything. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash TCFC. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash TCFC. Explicit content is found in this episode. So, listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. In the United States, it is believed nearly 10 million people experience domestic abuse every year. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, about 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner. Victims are often isolated by their partners, leaving them disconnected from their family and friends. Victims are often ashamed of the abuse and are afraid of their abusers. On March 26, 2002, William S. Cotter Jr. entered the family home in Amesbury, Massachusetts, where his estranged wife, Dorothy Cotter, was living. William was armed with a sawed-off shotgun and wearing an ammunition belt when he grabbed his wife in front of their horrified daughter. 
he had called 911, telling dispatchers, if they kick the door, someone's going to get hurt real bad. Talking about the police response. As the police broke into the home, William shot his wife in the back. Officers responded by firing 11 shots into the darkened home, missing William entirely. However, he took matters into his own hands and fatally shot himself. Dorothy had met William when she was 16 years old, and they had been a couple for 20 years, having two daughters together. While filing protection paperwork, Dorothy reported William had physically abused her over the years. On January 3, 2002, she decided to end the marriage and left Massachusetts, fleeing to a battered women's shelter in Maine. Once she was out of state, William filed paperwork to obtain custody of their children, which forced Dorothy to return to Massachusetts and seek help from the Women's Crisis Center of Greater Newburyport. She then obtained two restraining orders, but one of them allowed William to return to the home to retrieve his tools. Instead of retrieving his tools, he hid in the garage and waited for Dorothy to return home. He attacked her and threatened to kill her if she screamed. She reported it to the police the next day, and they issued a warrant for his arrest. He turned himself in, but walked without posting any bail. In 2008, the first annual Dorothy's 5K Run was organized, which was held in conjunction with the 17th Annual Walk Against Violence to benefit the Women's Crisis Center. Less than a month later, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there was another domestic violence murder-suicide. On April 17th, Scott Saunders entered the home where his estranged wife, Desiree, lived. Neighbors called the police after they heard screaming, then gunshots. When officers arrived on the scene, they found the couple in a third-floor bedroom where Scott had shot Desiree, then turned the gun on himself. Desiree and Scott had been married for 12 years, and by all accounts, their marriage was a happy one. However, in the weeks before their deaths, the physical and emotional abuse came to a head. Desiree filed an affidavit for an emergency restraining order, citing a recent incident where she had arrived home late and he struck her across the face. The restraining order mandated Scott turn over any guns he had, but after the shooting, it was not clear if he had turned over all of his weapons. On March 25th, Scott went to the Cambridge Police Department, claiming Desiree was drinking and taking antidepressants and threatening to kill herself. Social services were called and they responded that week. The investigators found that both Scott and Desiree were in counseling, noting he was in a batterer's group with no prior history of violence. After the deaths, social services stated there had been no indication anything like that was going to happen. One anonymous neighbor said, it goes to show you that people can smile and behave as though nothing is wrong and then be somebody else entirely when they're inside the house, which could also be said about our main case today, Jennifer Duprat. Okay, on to the show. Jennifer Duprat was just 54 years old when she decided to retire from her job as a middle school principal. She had been an educator since graduating from Fresno State University in 1985, 
although she spent several years substitute teaching before taking a full-time position teaching sixth grade in 1990. She also filed for divorce from her husband of 26 years, Alan Duprat. Jennifer had moved back to her childhood home with her mother, Cynthia Houck. Cynthia was 88 years old and began to experience medical problems. Cynthia had balance issues, which caused her to fall frequently, so she had given several neighbors keys to her home in case she needed assistance. She also had hip surgery in 2017, so Jennifer wanted to be there with her mother in her later years. William Bill Houck, Cynthia's husband and Jennifer's father, had passed away in 2011. Bill had been an intelligence officer in the United States Air Force. He and Cynthia had moved into their home in the late 1970s and raised Jennifer and her brother Jeff there. On Monday, December 11th, 2017, Jennifer was supposed to meet her best friend, Kelly Rosales, so they could get more of her stuff from the home she once shared with her estranged husband, Alan Duprat. When the always punctual and reliable Jennifer did not show up, Kelly phoned the police, who went to the home Jennifer shared with Cynthia. Nothing seemed amiss at the house, although neighbors reported they hadn't seen either woman since the morning of December 8th. At that time, Jennifer was spotted walking her dogs. It was also noted that the Saturday newspaper had been picked up, but the Sunday paper had not. Neighbors let officers into the house, where they found Cynthia and Jennifer both deceased. There were no signs of forced entry, no unlocked doors, and no broken windows. Officers stayed on the scene to gather evidence for several hours that day. Other officers went to the home of Jennifer's estranged husband, Alan. Alan disavowed any knowledge about the murders, but also said that he knew Jennifer had a boyfriend and was curious to learn about him. Alison Duprat, the couple's adult daughter, informed officers that her mother had suffered domestic violence at the hand of her father, although no charges had been filed, nor had any reports been made. Investigators obtained a search warrant for Alan Duprat's home and retrieved several firearms, but at the time, they did not have any probable cause to arrest Alan. They had not released to the public yet the cause of death of the two women, although the removal of the firearms implied they had died of gunshot wounds. Within days of the murders, officers asked the public to provide security footage from the weekend of the women's murders to determine if there was anything out of the ordinary or suspicious. They asked for footage from several intersections in the area from December 8th to December 11th. Investigators soon confirmed both women had been shot Cynthia was sitting in a chair in the living room when she was shot in the head. Jennifer was also shot in the head and found face down in the garage. Both women's purses were still in the home, and over $1,000 was found. Because the money was not missing, purses were not taken, and other valuables were not touched, police ruled out burglary. Police theorized the women knew their attacker and had let them in, or they had a key to the residence and ambushed the women. The investigation seemed to stall for several months. On Monday, July 23, 2018, Allison Duprat, the daughter of Jennifer and Allen, held a silent sit-in at the Fresno County Sheriff's Department. The event was held from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Allison asked anyone to show up for support. She provided signs which were large photographs with captions like, 
I was a coworker and I was a mother. The captions were accompanied by the hashtags Justice for Jack and Jen and Cynthia. As Allison explained, to me, this is really the time to place gentle pressure on them and let them know there's a whole community that's been waiting for answers. We haven't forgotten just because it's been eight months. Allison was frustrated by the pace of the investigation, but remained positive rather than critical about the investigators. As Fresno County Sheriff Margaret Mims said, this is not something you hurry up. When it's ready, we'll submit it to the DA. We have to be able to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt at trial, and that's a very high threshold. We only get one chance at this prosecution. Fresno County District Attorney Lisa Smithcamp said, The perception might be that she's attacking the DA's office, but I don't feel that at all. I feel like she's a victim of a horrendous crime, suffering a horrendous tragedy, and she's doing the very best she can to advocate for her mom and grandma. Homicide investigations are extremely complex. They involve witness statements, the examination of physical evidence, medical and autopsy evidence, the examination of firearms. They are lengthy and oftentimes difficult. Another contributing factor to the length of the investigation was the Fresno County Sheriff's Department had seven detectives assigned to the homicide team, and they were investigating 17 homicides during 2017. Allison told reporters she knew who had committed the murders, but like the investigators, did not want to name the suspect to prevent obstruction of the investigation. She said, It's very frustrating when you know who did it, and you're being told by detectives that they're confident they know who did this, and the person is just living a normal life in Fresno County. She further expressed her frustration by saying, They are just living their normal, they are just living their normal day-to-day life. It is very frustrating to think that, that this person is sitting at home on a comfortable couch, watching TV, and I don't have my mother and grandmother. Allison said her mother was a fan of activism, and on Jennifer's last birthday, they attended the March for Science on Earth Day in Los Angeles. She was always proud of me being involved in the community and standing up for what I believe in and what's right, so I definitely think she would be proud that I'm taking action on this. Unfortunately, although Allison's father was still alive, she felt completely alone. She said that her father never called to check up on her, never came to the scene of the crime, and she was devastated by that. Also, even though Jennifer had filed for divorce on October 20th, 2017, just two months before her murder, Allen had access to her savings and the nest egg she had built. Allison told reporters in May 2018 that her dad had lost touch with reality. He began withdrawing funds from Jennifer's accounts and put the family home on the market, but legally there was nothing Allison could do to stop him. Police received a great deal of surveillance footage from the community, including businesses, and footage from devices such as ring doorbell cameras. While reviewing this footage, they discovered a white crew cab pickup seen in the area between December 9th and 11th. Alan Duprat drove a white Chevrolet Colorado crew cab truck, although he denied being in the area in that time frame. After almost 10 months, police made an arrest in the murders of Jennifer and her mother, Cynthia. 
On September 25, 2018, Alan Duprat was arrested at 8.30 a.m. outside his home in Kingsburg. He was arrested without incident and was cooperative. Alan was booked into the Fresno County Jail and was charged with two counts of murder, two counts of arson, and a count of vandalism. All right, guys, back again to talk about FunJet. Now, let's be honest, whether you're back in the office or still in your sweatpants working from home, that's still me. Life's day-to-day responsibilities lack the fun we all want and deserve. If you're looking for a sign to use some of that hard-earned PTO and have some much-needed fun, look no further. FunJet Vacations is a one-stop shop for all your vacation needs. And as experts in the industry, FunJet Vacations offers customers a fast, easy, and fun way to book their next vacation with exclusive package deals to all-inclusive resorts in Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. For a limited time, our listeners can use promo code FUNJET75 for $75 off your next FunJet vacation at Ryu Hotels and Resorts. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly resort or, like me, an adults-only getaway, there is a Ryu Hotel and Resort for you. To get started, just go to funjet.com or contact your travel advisor and you'll be out of the office in no time, maybe sipping Mai Tais on the beach, which is my dream. Offer is only valid at funjet.com when booked by October 15th for travel through December 2021. Restrictions apply. Now, if you're a true crime aficionado like I am, you wish that every crime could be prevented. Now imagine if every crime could be halted before it happened. Okay, so you can't stop every criminal in their tracks. What if you could deter them? That's what Simply Safe's new wireless outdoor security camera does. It's wireless, so it can install anywhere, extending Simply Safe's perimeter of defense from your windows and doors to the far corners of your property. That's right, Simply Safe, the system that US News and World Report names best home security system of 2021 just got even better, if that's even possible. I'm super happy with my wireless outdoor camera. It has an ultra-wide 140-degree field of view, so you can keep watch over your entire yard. And with three dogs and now a baby, it's really important to me. It has 1080p HD resolution with an eight-time zoom. That means you can zoom in and clearly see things like faces and license plates to capture critical evidence. To learn more about the exciting new Simply Safe wireless outdoor security camera, visit simplysafe.com/tcfc. Simply Safe is offering 20% off your entire new system and your first month of monitoring service free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Again, that's simplysafe.com/tcfc. During the course of the homicide investigation, Sheriff's Department investigators became aware of a Fresno Fire Department arson investigation and two fires that they had quickly determined were arson. The first fire was on November 22, 2017, in front of Cynthia Houck's home. Her car was intentionally set ablaze while parked in front of the house. The second incident was on December 4, 2017, and involved a commercial area at the corner of 1st and Gettysburg in Fresno. 
The commercial building housed a dental office, and the Alliance Francaise de Fresno, a French club that Jennifer Duprat belonged to. Jennifer had been president of the club in the past, and was also the director of classes. On the night of December 4th, there was a club meeting, but it had been moved to a different location. Surveillance footage showed the same white crew cab in the area of the fire. Scott Donig, president of the French club at the time of the fire, said that after many years of dreaming of an office, of a place where we could have a cultural center, the organization built up enough funds to actually make the venture. And so everything we had, literally everything, was stored there. I was devastated like the rest of us and are shocked. It gives you an opportunity to reassess where you've been and where you're going. And I do believe this is our moment to literally rise from the ashes. The fire was a two-alarm fire that was tackled by 38 firefighters over an hour and a half. The day after Alan's arrest, Mark Bra, a private investigator, spoke with a local news station. He had been hired by Alan Duprat just days before the double homicide. He said that Alan hired him to find out who Jennifer was seeing. Alan was convinced she was seeing someone from the French club, but didn't know who. He claimed his marriage started failing the more involved she became with the French club. Alan was concerned with his finances, telling the investigator he had prepared for retirement and this divorce was straining that. As part of the investigation, Mark told Alan they could rent him a GPS device to just let him know when Alan had put it in Jennifer's car. However, the device never left Alan's home until it was removed by the sheriff's department during a search warrant. Another search warrant had been carried out at Alan's parents' home in Clovis. Numerous guns had been removed from their home, but testing revealed none of these were the firearms used in the double homicide. Alan Duprat appeared before a judge on September 27, 2018, and pleaded not guilty. At his appearance, he sported a black eye and a cut over the eye. His attorney, Mark Broughton, blamed the jail staff. He was being booked into Fresno County Jail. There was an incident, and his head was hit against the wall. He suffered a severe laceration on his left eye and a black eye. Sheriff spokesman Tony Body told the Fresno Bee that Allen became difficult and attempted to walk away from them after he refused to follow their instructions. Investigators revealed that Allen had put glue in the keyhole of the French club on November 4th, which caused the misdemeanor vandalism charge. Investigators also found searches on Allen's phone about how to disable an OnStar tracking system in his truck. They also believed his phone had been turned off for an hour and a half around the time Jennifer and Cynthia were murdered. In March 2018, someone broke into Cynthia's home and ransacked Jennifer's bedroom. Investigators believed whoever it was knew it was Jennifer's room and were looking for something specific. Additionally, Alan Duprat admitted to family members he had set Cynthia's car ablaze. In May 2019, Alan Duprat began fighting to have the Fresno County District Attorney's Office removed from the case because of his familial ties to the office. At the time, Alan's cousin, Jeff Duprat, was one of the top attorneys in the office. Since they were close relatives, Alan's attorney also believed there was bias because the District Attorney's Office would not prosecute the individual Alan said assaulted him. Additionally, 
Jeff's brother, Paul, was detained when investigators executed the first search warrant on Alan's house. Not long after Jennifer and Cynthia's bodies were discovered, witnesses saw Paul removing guns from Alan's house. Investigators searched Paul's home a few days later and found an illegal rifle as well as a key to Jennifer's Mercedes. The Fresno County DA's office had the Tulare County District Attorney's office prosecute the illegal weapon case. The District Attorney of Fresno County, Lisa Smithcamp, spoke with the Attorney General and explained the situation. She assured the Attorney General that the employment of Jeff Duprat would not affect the investigation. In July 2019, Allen's attorney expressed concerns about Allen's mental competency. He would not go into detail about why he had concerns, other than to say, I just had concerns based upon interviews and certain other things. Allen was potentially facing the death penalty in the case due to the special circumstances, including multiple victims and arson. Howard Terrell of Clovis was the court-appointed psychiatrist who evaluated Allen Duprat. Judge Michael Idiart would not rule on the conflict of interest motion until he received the full report from Dr. Terrell. Allen's attorney, Mark, said if his client was found to have mental issues, doctors could prescribe medication until he was deemed competent to stand trial. However, if the defendant did not regain mental competency, they could be sent to the state hospital, where mentally ill inmates were held. Allen's mental competency had been a concern of his attorney since the beginning of the case. He said, I'm not going to say that this did not come up in the beginning, but a diligent attorney must be watchful over his client. Things can change. He has never been in custody before, and over time, those conditions can be very stressful. In September 2010, Allen was deemed incompetent and ordered to undergo treatment at the state hospital. When he appeared in court for the ruling, he was thinner and looked unhealthy. His attorney was concerned about not only his mental health, but his physical health and requested Allen be seen by a neurologist. Allen was not able to move or use his left arm. His attorney said, He is clearly not the same person he was a year ago. Dr. Terrell said Allen's mental condition was so bad, he did not understand what happened. While in court for his competency hearing, Allen had an empty look on his face and his head rolled occasionally. He also had to have assistance to stand. Mark said his client could have had a stroke, had a tumor, or had been assaulted, which left him with lasting injuries. Just a few weeks after this court appearance on October 6, 2019, Allen was admitted to the Community Regional Medical Center for Unknown Concerns. On October 16, 2019, Allen passed away. The day before he passed away of unknown causes, the hospital called Allison and advised her of her father's deteriorating health. Allison visited the hospital to gain closure and later told reporters that she had forgiven her dad. She said he remembered her and they shared some happier memories. Allison said she grew up with a dream childhood and her mother and grandmother being murdered. Then her father being accused of the murder was not how she imagined her life turning out. Allison said her father told her he was sorry a few times, but never expanded on why he was sorry. Allison was relieved there would not be a trial, and her father passing away afforded her the ability to start over. 
she moved to New York and started what she called her dream job. She said of her mother, She weighs into my decisions. It pushed me to be better and kinder. Jennifer Duprat had submitted retirement papers in April 2017. She had taught for 26 years, all but one of those years in the Kingsburg School District. She started out as a sixth grade teacher at Roosevelt Elementary and then was principal at Rayford Johnson and Lincoln Elementary. After she announced her intention to retire, she spoke with the Sentinel, a local newspaper. When asked how she felt about being so close to retirement, Jennifer said she was excited, but also sad. She had worked with thousands of students in the district in her 26 years, including students who were the children of her former students. She gave her reason for retiring as, I am retiring now because I want to spend more time caring for my mother, who is elderly. I don't think you ever regret spending more time with your family. Jennifer said she had a goal of visiting all seven continents and had been on four. She loved to travel and wanted to volunteer. She cited one of her best memories as when the school district did a change drive to raise money for a student whose family had lost everything in a house fire. Jennifer said, Students, parents, staff, and the community pulled together to raise enough change to buy the family a car to replace the one lost in the fire within a week's time. Dr. Wesley Seaver, a superintendent of the district, announced her death on the district's Facebook page. He said, Jennifer Duprat has been a part of our Kingsburg Elementary family for more than 26 years. Mrs. Duprat was an award-winning principal, a great leader, an incredible mom, and most importantly, a friend to all. We are deeply saddened by the loss to our school community. The district had a crisis intervention team to help students, faculty, and staff to navigate the grief surrounding Jennifer's untimely demise. Less is known about her mother, Cynthia, other than she was quiet and kind. What is known is that both women touched the lives of many others, and they are terribly missed by their family members. If you or a loved one are the victim of domestic violence, please call 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. If you are located in the UK, there's a 24-hour National Domestic Abuse Helpline. That number is 0808. 0808- Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at TrueCrimeFanClubPod. And of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez. Produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. <laughs>